Christian Fellowship Church, this morning we come to the seventh letter to the seventh, seventh church in Revelation chapter 3. Go ahead and turn there. I'm going to pray and then we're going to jump immediately in. Father, we are reminded through what we heard, read already, and the words that we have sung already, uh, that you are good, you have provided in Jesus Christ a unfathomable gift that our debts can be taken care of totally. Uh, But Father, as we approach your word now, we do pray that we would listen, that we would adhere. Even if we barely made it out of bed this morning, maybe someone else had to drag us here this morning, I pray that this would be a moment of reckoning for each and every one of us. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. As is true with each of these letters to each of these seven churches, we need to begin by reminding ourselves that we are encountering right now, here with Revelation 3, the very Word of God. Do you understand? God's words, Scripture, and anything I say, insofar as it's in line with what Scripture says, it's God's Word, the authoritative Word of the Lord. Not musings of a scholar that you may or may not consider. I'm reminded of the humorous quote from Bill Clem, a Hall of Fame uh, Major League Baseball umpire. He, he umped games from 1905 to 1941, and he was famous for communicating his supreme authority in the game by answering a simple question. Is that ball fair or foul? And his answer was, it ain't nothing till I call it. And the reason why it's humorous is because we think in terms of, do I think that ball is fair? Do I think that ball went foul? Let me see the footage. They didn't have replays back then, so especially was on him, right? But his reminder was, it's not whether the ball was fair or foul, it's what I say is fair or foul that determines whether the ball is fair or foul. His supreme authority is ump. Now, as Christians or non-Christians, wherever you are today, what we're doing here is not a TED Talk on Sunday mornings. What we're doing is opening God's Word, and what Christians believe is as we open God's Word, God is telling us what He says. And then our responsibility is to surrender everything we think we know to what He says says you may think you know something this morning but what he says should shape what you think how you think Jesus eyes press into all of our lives and so in the same way our sermon the sermon today with this letter the last one to Laodicea the the the, the Laodicea the last one 
that we're going to look at that was offered here. Jesus speaking directly to a church, but through that communication, he's speaking to all churches, which includes us. And it is Jesus himself saying it. You might think your life is going poorly. You might think your life is going great. But it ain't nothing until Jesus calls it. And so we're going to see that right at the top, we're reminded of that reality. That Jesus' judgments are reliable because he's a faithful and true witness. He is the faithful and true witness. And so it's not enough to just wear a wristband that says, what would Jesus do? What does Jesus say? And that shapes my life. Verse 14, and to the angel of the church in Laodicea write, the words of the amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. This text tells us that Jesus is the amen. How that's... Sounds like Christianese. A lot of us were just used to saying amen. What does that really mean? Well, amen is an ancient Hebrew word that means true. That's true. Or truly. You could begin a sentence with amen. This is true. Now, truly, or when Jesus would say, truly, truly, I say to you. And why do we sometimes... Uh, or oftentimes end our prayers with amen. May all this that I just said be true. According to your will, may you enact these things that I just prayed. May they be true. Amen is not just a formula. You can wave your wand, but unless you say amen, the incantation didn't work. This isn't magic. right? Amen just means everything I just said, may it be true. Lord, please. If you've ever heard someone respond to... Uh, a sermon by saying amen, maybe in the middle of the sermon, and amen. If y'all gave me some today, I'm mad at you, okay? What does that mean? Amen. You might hear me ask for it, amen. True? That's what I'm saying. True? And if you go, amen, you're going, true. Why? Because we don't care about opinions. It's, is it true? Yes, pastor, that's true. We might respond in songs with amen, like the end of the doxology, singing out that long, drawn-out amen at the end. It's everything we just sang is true. Jesus is the amen. He is God's answer that everything he has promised, everything he has told you would be true, is true in Jesus Christ. He is God's big amen to everything he's ever said. Jesus is true, and what he says is true. He is a faithful witness. What, does he, what is he a witness to? All of God's truth. So this is a really long uh, theological way of basically saying, truly, truly, what I'm about to tell you, church, is not an error, it's not optional, and you need to understand it. You need to grasp it. So turn off your phone, close your social media apps, Stop thinking about what's for lunch and listen because these are God's words from and through 
Jesus Christ, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation, which doesn't mean that in the beginning Jesus was created. It means that Jesus is over all things. Remember when Revelation tells us Jesus is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end? It doesn't mean Jesus had a beginning and has an end. What does it mean that Jesus is the beginning and the end? It means that he is over all things. Nothing comes before him. Nothing comes after him. That's what this means. Not that Jesus is created, but Jesus is over all creation. That anything God has ever started, he started in Jesus Christ. And anything that he started and it's true, it's true because of Jesus Christ himself, the Alpha and the Omega. Now the point to all this intro is the same point to all the other intros to all the other churches. Jesus commands his churches and he offers true counsel that must be heard. Now, what is he communicating to this church in Laodicea? It's a tough word. It's a hard word. I think you're like, well, some of these have been hard words. I think this is the hardest one. I think this is the hardest one. His point, his message to the church in Laodicea is that Jesus will not put up with churches that are lukewarm. He doesn't have a spot on the bench for lukewarm players. You'll just get cut. Period. Jesus will not put up with churches that are lukewarm. Let's just look at 15, 16, and 17. I know your works. You were neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. That's hard. What does it mean that a a church is lukewarm? What does it mean when he says you're lukewarm? I wish you were cold or hot. It'd be better if you were either hot or cold, but you're, you're neither. You're lukewarm. Well, some of the reasons why it's, it, this is really not difficult at all, but, but we in, in Christian culture tend to think of cold Christians versus on-fire Christians, right? Oh, he's so on fire for God. Oh, he's just kind of cold right now. I'm not saying we can't think of Christians in that regard, but we take that and then we impose it on this, and this is not what he's talking He's not talking about cold Christians versus on-fire Christians. Jesus is not saying, I wish you were totally cold and not into me at all or really on fire for me like you just came out of revival but you're just kind of in the middle that's not what he's saying what he means by lukewarm is that they are undrinkable i'll drink hot liquid or i'll drink cold liquid but liquid that's been sitting out in this room temperature now that's nasty that's what he's saying Just because these words explain it better than I can, I'm lifting these words from Dennis Johnson's very good commentary. It's short, readable. You should grab it. It's called Triumph of the Lamb. Dennis Johnson, Triumph of the Lamb. Here's the background he provides to Laodicea so you can understand what I'm trying to, the point I'm trying to score with you here about what lukewarm means. Laodicea's location in the Lycus River Basin was strategic for trade and transportation but far from ideal from the standpoint of a city's need for usable water. 
Hierapolis, on a plateau some six miles to the north, had hot springs known for their medicinal value. Colossae, ten miles to the east, received cool, pure drinking water from a nearby mountain stream. Laodicea had neither. The water of the Lycus River was and is turbid with white mud and nauseous and undrinkable. Remains of an aqueduct suggest that water may have been channeled from hot springs five miles south of the city. For a city so affluent in financial resources and self-sufficient in civic spirit, Laodicea ironically lacked a basic resource, water to drink. Now this is a, this is a wealthy city. I've spared you many of the historical background details, A, because so many sermons give you so much historical background to these, just YouTube them and B, because the sermons would then be way longer than they already are. But Laodicea, uh, you know, we, we, read, we mentioned before how some of these churches were hit by earthquakes and they needed to recover, and Laodicea didn't need money from the state to recover. They're like, no, we got it. Could you imagine a city so wealthy that Rome is like, we can give you a tax break. They're like, nah, we'll just rebuild it. Okay. But they didn't have drinking water. <laughs> They had to get it from somewhere else. This is what Jesus is channeling when he's talking to them about their situation. You're like, you know your water situation? That's what you're like. I can't make tea with you, and I can't have a refreshing drink with you either. You're not good for hot cocoa, and you're not good for a drink after a good workout. Like, you're, you're just lukewarm water. And I'll, I'll reject you. For being lukewarm, meaning I will reject you for not being usable. Usable. That is, the church at Laodicea is of no use to Jesus. Jesus doesn't need water. It's not like Jesus is up there thirsty and churches need to kind of supply something to him. What he means is using you for kingdom work. Now, throughout this series, I've emphasized, haven't I, over and over again, Jesus is getting his churches and putting them to work. Now, some of them have bad works. Some of them are a mix of good works and bad works. Some of them are all good works, but he's just warning them they're going to suffer, right? So we've seen both sides, good works that churches do, bad works that churches do. Sometimes the bad is good works they're supposed to do. They're just not doing it, right? We talked about that too. But works, works, works. Throughout these seven letters... Five different times Jesus says, I know your works. Your works. Does Jesus have x-ray vision, can see our hearts? Yes. But even Jesus, with his x-ray vision, looks at the exterior. What are you doing? Or what are you not doing? And here, he doesn't tell them, I know your works. They're really great, but here's some things that are off. He's just telling them they're going to be rejected if they don't change. Look quickly at chapter 2, verse 23. It should be right there, right next to where we're at. We're in chapter 3. So chapter 2, verse 23, if you're reminded of, if we're reminding ourselves of this, we're going to be reminded that this is the letter to Thyatira. We're there not long ago. And he wants that church to discipline the people among them that are not doing well. 
And he says, and all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart. There's the interior view. And I will give to each of you according to your works. There's the exterior view. And it's all one package. You can't be a Christian. Your mind and your heart is good. You just don't have any works to show for it. And some people show a lot of works, but the mind and heart isn't there. And they're just, they're just doing stuff. But they're, that doesn't mean they're Christian. They go together. Mind and heart that are true. And if that's the case, it produces works. I know as I move through these seven letters, someone's going to come away going, he's, Lucas preaches a lot of works. I thought it was about grace. If you think grace is detached from works, you have a major problem. A major problem. Like an eternity dangerous problem. Because if you think grace means God forgives me and I get to just do whatever I want, you haven't received grace. We're kind of like, man, Lucas don't play. It's not, Jesus don't play. I, I will spit you out of my mouth. It's a hard word because he wants to jolt them out of this, this situation where they are unusable. They are not doing works that they're supposed to be doing. That's why he starts verse 15 with the fifth time he uses this phrase. I know your works, you're neither cold nor hot. Their works are lukewarm. Meaning, their works are not usable by God. Their works are not usable by God. I've repeatedly emphasized in this church, not just in this series, that real faith means works. These letters kind of come at it the other way. Real works means faith. Do you have faith? Let's see what you got. That's what James says. Lots of people do things, but it doesn't mean that it's for the Lord, and it doesn't mean that it's received by the Lord as works. For some of you, this might be reminders. For some of you, this might be new. Either way, if it puts a lump in your throat, it probably means that you're listening and you're understanding, you're tracking. The only other verse I'm going to share with you besides Revelation 3 this morning is this verse up on the screen from Matthew 7. I reference it a lot. And the reason why I reference it a lot is because it's, it's one of the top probably five texts in my life uh, that has shaped my understanding. Listen to these verses. This is Jesus saying, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. See, not just naming me as Lord, but doing my will. See it? Doing my will. Not just having a baptism certificate in a drawer somewhere. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? Now, now hold, just pause it there a second. He just said, many are going to say, Lord, Lord, and it's not enough to call me Lord. You have to do my will, do the Father's will. So just calling me Lord, calling yourself a Christian, a follower of Christ, calling me Christ, he's saying, it, that's not enough. You have to do the will of the Father. And then what is their response? What, what do you mean? Do the will of the Father. We prophesied. We cast out demons. This is another sermon, but I don't even know how that works. How do they cast out demons if they're not Christian? But they, they at least think they did. We prophesied in your name. Not some other religion. We wore the Christian badge. Our, our meeting of religion had a big steeple on the top with a cross on it. 
and we cast out demons in your name, and we did many mighty works in your name. What do you mean? Look at the next verse. And then I will declare to them, no, you didn't. Your works weren't enough. Now he brings it to relationship. So he brings it from the exterior to the interior. Then I will declare to them, I never knew you. So what were all their works? Works of lawlessness. This passage blows my mind. He's not saying you didn't do anything. He's saying all of that activity, all of that action, all that getting up early and serving was for other motives and driven by something else than knowledge of me. You're doing works. You think they're mighty works, but you don't even know me. I don't know you. We don't have a relationship. And so because all those things that you do, those religious things that you do that look good to other people, that look real holy to other people, because they don't stem and flow from a relationship with me, knowledge, it's not just that they don't count. It's that they're actually evil works. That's what's crazy. Prophesying, casting out demons, all these mighty works, are actually, you're actually workers of iniquity, another translation says. Workers of lawlessness, not law. So God says, do, and you didn't. And they're like, yeah, we did. And he's like, no, you didn't. And they're like, but look at exhibit A, B, and C. And he goes, you don't know me. Now, I think that's exactly what Jesus is channeling here in Revelation chapter 3. He says, I know your works. He didn't say you don't do any works. He's saying, I know your works. And guess what? You're unusable to me. And that's why I will spit you out. I will reject you just like we saw in Matthew 7. In that day, these people that stand up there, they're like, I think I'm front of the line. I think I'm in the front of the line. You're not even in the line, bro. Depart from me. Not get in the back. As we move through Revelation, we're going to see a stark contrast between people who are in and people who are out. What about people who are kind of in? There's no such thing. Where are you today? Jesus is saying that our works actually have to be proven to come from, uh, they prove the faith that we have, this interior thing that we have. It proves, it shows itself in works. But just the exterior doing of works doesn't mean that you have this thing on the inside that is a relationship with Jesus Christ. Those works need to be in a re- stemming from a relationship with Christ or else you're doing works for some other reason, some other glory, probably the glory of self. And there it is again, like I say often, works won't get you to Jesus, but Jesus will get you to work. And the order matters. The order is crucial. Now, Jesus is doing a clean-out, and not every church is going to make it. Not every church grower is going to make it, right? And we see this as a theme through the seven letters. Now, uh, spring is coming, March 20th. It's right around the corner. Some of y'all might have spring cleaning in mind. And uh, I stumbled upon an article from a couple years ago that gives you a guide as to what to get rid of. As you're going through your house, all your stuff... What should you get rid of? 65 things to be exact. I'm not going to read through the list of 65 things, but you don't have to memorize the 65 things. All 65 things have one thing in common. You can probably guess what it is. Do you use it? 
usable or not? Useful or not? Am I actually going to use it? Or do I convince myself one day, maybe, in a particular situation, I might perhaps use it? Let's put it in a box. Get rid of it, right? That's the, the, the spring cleaning motivation behind the article. Here's just five examples. Outdated device cords. Get rid of it. Why? Because that device is outdated. You're never going to, you don't need that charger anymore, right? Expired coupons. You can't use that coupon anymore. Well, just in case they ever bring it back. It doesn't make sense. You will not use that coupon. Old calendars. That year has passed. Put it behind you. Old takeout menus. That stuff is online, right? Last year's sunscreen. I don't know. They say there's an expiration date. You're just putting stuff on your skin, but it's not useful. And you could just pre- keep pressing through the list. This is not a sermon about spring cleaning. I, don't, I, I hesitate to use this. Over lunch is going to be like, so what are you doing for spring cleaning? I don't want you to talk about that. I want you to talk about, so what do you think about hot versus cold? When Jesus does the spring cleaning in his churches and he opens the drawer and sees CFC, are we useful? And when he scrolls through the membership of Christian Fellowship Church, are you useful? Or are you an expired coupon sitting in the drawer? That's what this passage is about. And Jesus is not the type of person to go, I'll just open up a new storage. I'll rent a new storage box. What do you call those things? And I'll just keep putting stuff in there. Very efficient. Jesus cleaning is. So, Jesus makes it very clear he's not going to put up with not being useful, works that aren't actually works, this lukewarm state that is detestable to him. You will be rejected. You will be spat out of his mouth. And it seems that he describes this church as totally unsaved. That blows my mind too. Because he's addressing a church. It'd be one thing if he were addressing the government or Rome or Caesar or people that persecute his saints. But, but he's talking to the church that is in Laodicea. That means they have a meeting time. They have elders. They, they have some form of doctrine, a doctrinal statement. As you see Paul telling Timothy and, uh, to raise up elders that protect the truth. What truth? Uh, keep the things that were handed down to you. So they had a set of things. They had a membership role. Remember when Paul tells Timothy how to keep track of the widows? Enroll these widows, but don't enroll these kinds of widows. So, I mean, they they, they didn't have uh, Word documents, but they had parchments with names on it. So these are actual physical churches that had physical meeting places, membership roles, officers, a worship service, a worship leader, someone's preaching. They had all these things. And he's addressing them as a church and then describes them as unsaved. I'm not sure I've ever realized that before, but look at, look at what he says in the next verse. Here's how he's describing them. Remember we talked about how rich and wealthy this town is? They're, they're so wealthy they don't need the government's help. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, maybe through the earthquakes or whatever, right? I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing. Not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. 
Those are terms that the Bible uses for unsaved people. And so when he describes them as wretched, I mean, yeah, you remember <laughs> what Paul says in uh, Romans chapter 7, this, this wretchedness that he's wrestling against, that's, that's not a good thing. When we sing songs like Amazing Grace, that God's amazing grace saved a wretch like me, that, that's what that word means, that outside of Christ we're in this corrupted state. We're pitiable, not rich. Jesus, through the Gospels, often uses things like being blind as a symbol for not having Christ, for being far from Christ. You don't see. Well, verse 18, here's the good news, guys, because there is good news. The good news is that Jesus offers what we need to not be in that state and become the people he wants us to become so he has that indicting statement in 17 like man yeah i know you think you're rich you're prosperous you're actually wretched pitiable poor blind and naked that's your state verse 18 offers a way out i counsel you the true witness the faithful witness the amen of god the beginning of creation gives counsel for you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may actually be rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Here's what I want you to notice. He gives them the problem. I know you think you're this. You're actually this, 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 and this. But if you come to me, I fix these things. So they're not, it's not two random lists. The things that he says you can come to me for fix the problems that he listed. So for example, where he says they are uh, poor, Jesus says, I invite you to buy refined gold and be rich. See, I'm going to reverse it for you, but you have to come to me. The answer is not keep grinding out all these works. You don't want me to end up saying, I don't know you. Come to me, and then I will supply you with rich treasure. So he wants to take them from poverty to wealth. This is the opposite of what Jesus told Smyrna in chapter 2, verse 9, where they're in actual poverty, remember? And he's like, I know you're in poverty, but actually you're rich. This is the opposite. I know you're rich. Actually, you're in poverty. But he wants to bring them over and bring them into not material wealth, but spiritual wealth, godly value. He wants to make them useful for God's kingdom. So from poor, he wants to make them rich. From nakedness, he wants to clothe them in white garments. Come to me to buy white garments to cover our shame. This harkens back to Genesis. You remember in Genesis... We kind of snicker like, oh, they didn't have clothes, and then they sinned, and then they're like, oh, we're naked. Well, that's so stupid. I did not know you were naked before. This is so dumb. That passage is about shame. The nakedness you feel when you're caught in the act in something, that, 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 that red face you get, when you were fine with your sin when nobody could see it, and then when eyes are on you and they can see it, they've got the evidence, they walked in your room, there it is, you're doing it. 
that hot shame that comes over you, that's God's built-in mechanism for you to change your ways. And Adam and Eve felt that right off the bat as soon as they heard God coming. Now you remember they try to patch up their own nakedness and their own shame by taking fig leaves and putting those together. And we might misread that by like fig leaves, that's an awkward clothing. And then God made them clothing from animal skins. Remember that? And we might be like, yeah, that's better. I would way prefer leather. This is not a fashion tutorial. Fig leaves are what Adam and Eve concocted on their own strength and by their own works to try to cover their shame on their own. And the skins are God's way of actually covering shame. And where do you think he got the skins from? Some other poor animal that didn't bite the fruit that didn't reject God, that wasn't responsible for creation, and it had to die to cover their sin. That's God saying, I cover your shame by having someone else cover it for you. There's your first hint of the gospel. In clothing. Now over lunch, when y'all talk about clothing, I want you to think of the gospel. Why are we all covered up? It's not about fashion statements. It's a symbol of God's covering of our shame. And Jesus invites it. Don't run from your shame. Don't act like you don't have shame. Recognize that it's shameful to sin. And then come to me and I will clothe you, not just a little bit, but with pure white garments, as if you never even had shame, as if you never had sin. I make you that way, but you have to come to me. You can't do it on your own. You don't do it by creating a building and putting a steeple on top and doing many mighty works in my name. You do it by me knowing you, and then I, through you, produce those works. He invites them into a relationship so that they wouldn't be naked. But he's telling them, right now, you have church and you have services, but you're still naked. You're still in shame. That passage in Genesis is about the shame of estrangement from God. Adam and Eve lost connection with God. And Jesus is offering to clothe them. By offering to clothe them, he's offering them to close that gap again. Bring them back home like the prodigal son. Finally, he calls them blind, and Jesus invites them to buy salve to anoint their eyes so that they can see. This is a common theme in the Gospels, Jesus healing blind people. He's not just showing off. He's saying, unsaved people are like people that can't see. And what do I, what do I come to do? I come to touch them so that now they can see, to rescue us from our spiritual blindness. Unbelievers are blind people. So the point of all those healings in the Gospel of Jesus healing blind people is not ophthalmology. It's this is what salvation looks like. Why am I making that point? I think Laodicea is not saved. They have sermons, but they're blind. They sing hymns, but they're blind. They have a church gathering time, but they're blind. They have elders, but they're blind. But he offers hope. He doesn't say, I spat you out of my mouth a long time ago. Why are you still meeting? He goes, I will spit you out of my mouth, but I'm still extending an invitation to come know me. And I will cover your shame. I will give you eyes that see. After meeting Jesus, you are rich with pure gold, clothed with white linen, and you're healed with eyes that can see. But they don't have these things yet. He doesn't speak about a remnant like he does with other 
verses. And I, another thing that, to note that's really important, he reserves his harshest words for this church. And not once has he mentioned idolatry. Not once has he mentioned sexual immorality. He mentions that with some of the other churches, and they at least have a remnant. They at least have some good stuff. He's like, but you got some bad stuff too. You got this sexual immorality thing going on. Stop tolerating that. And isn't it just like our confused hearts to go, that church, is, that church is so disgusting. And then Jesus goes, hey, the church that is really morally, ethically above board, looks like it's got it going on, because you don't know me. And because you don't know me, you're not producing works that are useful to me. And if you're not producing works that are useful to me, you're actually worse off than these other six churches. So he offers a way for them to change. He brings to them an invitation. And he offers that route to change as repentance in verse 19. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. Be zealous and repent. His motivation for offering them this is his love. And as hard as a word as this is, he's telling them, I'm, I'm doing this because I love you. He's not the abusive husband that punches the wife and he's like, it's because I love you. He's not an idiot. He's truly giving them this to them because he loves them. Because if he didn't love them, he'd be like, hey, I spat you out a long time ago. What are you doing? But the invitation and the accomplishment on the cross is motivated by love. And then he brings it to their attention by saying, hey, I don't want you to be confused thinking you're ready, thinking you're in thinking you're ready for the end time and you're not, thinking you're ready for death and you're not. A loving person does that. A loving person doesn't just point out what's wrong but shows the way out, shows the thing that you can change because the loving person doesn't want to see you staying there. So Jesus isn't being judgy. He's not just going, look at you down there, you're poor. He's like, wake up, you're actually poor. Here's how to be rich. So Laodicea shouldn't respond by going, oh my goodness, you're such a hard taskmaster. I, I, you know, you just have these impossible standards. No, listen, listen. <laughs> Here's your actual state. You're confused. You're actually here. And I want to bring you here. And there's a way to do that. The way to do that is zealously repent. That's one of my favorite words in the Bible. Zealous, zeal. We skip over that. Repentance is not just... Father, I know I've done a lot of stuff. Would you please forgive me? Thanks. Where do you want to go to lunch? See that? Zealous repentance owns all of these things. I am blind and I am naked. I am estranged from God. I have been playing church. I go to church. I do churchy things. I do Christian things, but, but I'm not in. I don't know him. I'm not in a relationship with him. Owning that zealously and repenting of that, and that brings the change that Jesus wants to bring in your life a zeal that prompts a real kind of repentance then he extends his promise in the last three verses that if we're truly in communion with Jesus he will make us conquerors in the end he will make us royal conquerors kingdom people that conquer we've unpacked a lot of this in the previous letter so we won't touch it phrase for phrase word for word but Jesus is essentially saying in these last couple verses, if I can't use you now, I can't conquer with you later. So check it out. Verse 20, Behold, I stand at the door 
and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne, as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So very quickly, he closes in a similar way that he closes the other letters, but he sneaks in something a little new. And for some of us as Christians, this is a very familiar passage. You may have seen an old painting with Jesus on the door. He's knocking, and would you please come in? Some of us have used this passage to evangelize an unbeliever and say, look, Jesus is inviting to come into your heart and change you. I don't think that's untrue, but let's not lose sight of the fact that this is written to a church. What Jesus is communicating here is you think I'm on the inside with you, but I'm locked out, actually. Y'all go into the church, but he's still on the outside going, am I, like, am I invited here? Or... And the response can't be, yeah, but our songs have your name in it. We had communion, of course you're invited. He's like, nah, there's only one way to invite me. It's that relationship. Bring me in. And I eat with you, and you eat with me. I, I, think, I think this is sort of a, a kind of a, a, a diagonal way of him saying, you're having communion, but you're not in communion with me. You're munching on bread, and you're drinking a little cup, but it's not communion because I don't know you. That's why it's a very churchy analogy. You think you have communion with me it's not there but if you zealously repent by hearing my voice you're the amen you're the true ouch the sermon hurts but you know what it, there's truth there you hear that and then repent if it's if the shoe fits and as a result he brings you in to a relationship with him that promises that in the end you don't just barely make it You're not just in by the skin of your teeth. You're a conqueror. And to return to that theme of those who are in and those who are out, there's no in-between. You are a conqueror or you are conquered in the end. You're victorious or defeated. You're a winner or a loser. That's it. And the difference between the two isn't skill or intellect, but your knowledge of the Savior, Jesus Christ. Which are you? Which are you? Jesus is saying, if you don't give me usability now, I won't grant you conquering rights later. And the answer is not to just buck up and start doing Christian works. The answer is to get into a real relationship with the Lord, to commune with him, and he'll put you to work And as you, brother or sister, think about this message for yourself, I want you to understand this stark contrast between the hot and the cold on one side and the lukewarm on the other side is the same contrast as the sheep and goats, conquerors conquered, and you're in one or the other. You're short little life all your hopes and dreams 
will either count for something in all of eternity or won't count at all for anything ever. Which are you? Your life matters because it's used by God for kingdom work or your life doesn't matter at all. All the things that we allow to consume our time and consume our attention, those things that we worry about. It's not that we shouldn't be involved in lots of things and doing lots of things, but those things either matter or don't matter in the end. And they only matter if you know Christ. Last thing I'll say, knowing Christ is not getting dunked in a tank. Knowing Christ isn't repeating after your grandmother's prayer when you were four at, at her bedside. Knowing a prayer isn't going to miracle camp, getting all hyped up with a bunch of other kids. You threw some axes, you heard a rip-roaring sermon, and you came down at the altar at the end. You don't have to go to a revival somewhere. Knowing Christ is Repentance. It's not, it's not difficult. You don't have to be in a particular spot. And you can do it right now, right now. You don't need a priest. You don't need someone to hold your hand and take you through the curtain. If you need help understanding things, come and talk to one of us. But right now, before I'm even done wrapping up this sermon, right now, you repent before the Lord. You close your eyes right now. You repent before the Lord. I am naked. I am shamed. And I've been putting this off, living my little meaningless life outside of you. I want to be saved for real I want to open the door I want to sup with you I want to commune with you I don't want to play church I want to be the church you do that now don't wait and I want you to leave here going I I know what side I'm in I'm not perfect but I know what side I'm on I'm on the side that clings to Jesus Christ's forgiveness of my sins that he purchased through his death on the cross the death that I should take he took it and as I place my faith in him he he uses me I'm not an expired coupon in the drawer I might be the smallest utensil in the kingdom but he uses me though for his glory and for his name's sake let's pray fathers we close out these seven letters to these seven churches we recognize how desperately we need you, that you uh, are very clear in what you are looking for. So any of us here, Father, that are left with questions, left with uh, doubts as to what exactly we're supposed to think or do right now, Lord, I pray that you would prompt us to find someone here, another member, an elder, me, someone, and, and let's talk and let's have that conversation, Lord, by your grace. Give us wisdom. As we continue to press ahead in those things, Lord. But for most of us, we understand that uh, you are a loving God to give us a rebuke if we need it, a correction if we need it. And I'm thankful that this church is filled with so many who do prove their knowledge of you through their usefulness in your kingdom. As we close in the song, energize us uh, with your grace, forgiveness, fill our hearts with gratitude. For those of us who might feel like maybe we are actually on the outside, I pray that that would change today and that through real, zealous repentance, they would become true citizens of your kingdom now.
And we ask it in Jesus' name. Would you stand and we'll